The enhanced editions of George R. R. Martin's Game of Thrones books are available exclusively on iBooks, including the just-released A Feast for Crows Enhanced Edition. It contains interactive character maps, hundreds of author notes, beautiful illustrations, a sigil guide, and much more. All these extras bring this thrilling adventure to life and help you stay on top of the epic storylines. Get A Feast for Crows Enhanced Edition exclusively on iBooks at apple.co slash Game of Thrones. Not available in all countries. I swear if some random person from my life is the person to drop this news on me, luckily they were wrong. Luckily there's no trailer. I mean, not luckily there's no trailer, but <laughs> luckily I didn't have to find out that way. We thank everyone for joining us. It's another Game of Bones. Today we're joined by a friend of the podcast. He goes by the name Poor Quentin. Thanks for having me on, guys. I'm a big fan. Thanks for coming, man. I go by Poor Quentin on the internet, on Tumblr and Twitter. I'm a mod at asoiafuniversity.tumblr.com. I always screw up that acronym, but I think I got it right this time. I blog a lot, especially about uh, what Euron is up to. That's probably my most popular stuff. Uh, under a little banner I call the Eldritch Apocalypse, which is, I think, how I came into contact we with you guys. We need to put a lightning strike after you say that. Just say it yeah. one more time. Indeed. I need, like, you know, <laughs> thunderclouds. I need, a, I need a cape. I need the whole supervillain I deal. am the storm. <laughs> Precisely. I mean, yeah, that's... That's that's why I love Euron. He's that taken up to the to the eleven. We had a lot of your stuff directed to us. I'd, I'd say over the past year, specifically regarding that, and I think a lot of the excitement picked up after George read the Forsaken in, directly mm-hmm. in front of Hannah at mm-hmm. Balticon. And and like I said, I think the the first thing you and I said to each other it was something like, I forget what I said. Something about my fears. Some, yeah, both your fears and your hopes being there, like or being realized in it. Something something poetic like that. You mentioned the, the Forsaken, the Aaron Dampier chapter that M- Martin read at Balticon, uh, which, yeah, fried everyone's brain. And I really loved because it uh, took a lot of the kind of images and ideas I've been talking about with Euron and his whole storyline for a while and just kind of brought it into the actual narrative. So, yeah, Euron, Euron fascinates me in a lot of ways because he's he comes from this really kind of part of the story we're kind of trained to consider as kind of a backwater and unimportant and important only for how it kind of ruins the storylines of everyone else. That's kind of what the Greyjoys have been for a lot of the story is just ruining other people's plans, especially Theon. <laughs> and, you know, Euron is initially presented as just kind of part of that world is just the next kind of iteration of that pattern. But then he's written with You this, were suspicious the whole time. Yeah, he's written with... He's an, introduced and written in this really bizarre way where he's talking about gods and Aaron's really afraid of him. And, like, there's these little hints that he's something much scarier and weirder than everyone else who's in part of this world and he's got the dragon horn and he may have been to Val- at this point we know he's been to valeria but back then we didn't know for sure there was just a lot of cool mysteries and stuff around him and then for me it was the, the big stuff was when i started thinking about that in connection with what's going on in old town um uh, yeah which i, mm-hmm. I, I loved your guys episode on the prologue to feast for crows which is of course set there and uh, there's just so many That's another place where there's just so much weird, crazy, magical stuff going on right underneath the surface and all colliding with each other and no one's quite sure what's going on. And at the end of A Feast for Crows, of course, Euron's about to attack the city. 
And so just that that association and that's 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 part of the story is something I really love and was writing a lot about. And then the kind of got connected with as other people have pointed out, there's some hints that uh, uh, Blood Raven taught Euron in his youth that Euron was a mm-hmm. one of the other candidates for the the job that Brand is now filling. Uh, there's the that he mentioned that he dreamt he could fly when he was a kid. And he's got he's got the the title of crow's eye and the sigil of the eye with the birds, all of which is the kind of the same symbolism connected to Blood Raven. And then so, like you know, if he's done that, then he's seen the others, and he might you know he talks about Westeros dying and wanting to be a new god born from all these graves, so he might be connected to that. And then for me, like the real last piece of the whole big puzzle was the horn that Sam's got, still got, and brought to Old Town mm-hmm. with him after yeah. finding back on the fist. And that that might be the horn of winter that, you know, turns out Mance's horn wasn't the real thing. And then John thinks, well, where's the true horn to himself? And then you got Sam with just that horn there. So for me, that, you know, led to the awesome metal album cover possibility that Euron might (laughs) blow that horn and bring down the wall and try to be, you know, be drop an album at the same time. Exactly. Because there's that, you know, that (laughs) no warning. Exactly. There's that question of like, okay, we know the others are coming. We know the wall's probably got to go down at some point, but like, how, you know, yeah. what's the mechanism for how do you, how do you do that? And if the others can do that, why haven't they done it yet? And so for me, that was like, okay, you have this guy who's maybe been set up in that kind of villainy and he's near this thing that can do it. So that, yeah, but I mean, there's the details, but what really attracted to me that part of the story is that is the, the crazy imagery and the like Lovecraftian stuff going on with the backstory, especially as Martin wrote about in World of Ice and Fire. And just, mm-hmm. yeah, that part of the story is just, it's so much different from every other part of the story, which I think you guys also said about the prologue to A Feast for Crows. It's just really different. And it comes out of n- almost nowhere after a story that wasn't concerned with even that part of the world at all. And it just it establishes itself really strongly in that. And I love, and uh, you know, as a, a larger picture, and we'll talk about that with the chapters we're doing today. I love that about A Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons that... Martin wasn't resting on his laurels at all, that he was oh, not at all. still making stuff up and still adding huge important characters and ideas and elements just as much as he did in the first couple books. I think it strikes folks uncertainly when they're four or five books into the series, whether they're reading the combined reading order, or whether they're just going to feast and they're hmm. meeting all these new characters. And they're also being told stories much like the prologue, but also this Brienne chapter heading toward the whisper, the whispers, they're being told stories, the reader in a different way than they got used to over the first three mm-hmm. books with totally different people. It's, it's just wow, extremely confident of George R. R. Martin to do. Yeah, because after I mean, three books, people kind of expect how things are going to be. Yeah, yeah, you look at Feast yeah. and after the prologue, the first four POVs are new, which is just amazing. Amazing and annoying, <laughs> but also amazing. <laughs> totally. I get, I feel, I get I feel why really people g- don't like the books, for sure. I, I go back and forth and people who listen know that I kind of go back and forth and um, I'm super on board with Euron and all the Greyjoy storyline in the Iron Islands and everything that's happening over there. But Dorne is a different story for me. And so I always go back and forth on this whole conversation that we have about what like we're saying, how confident George R. R. Martin was in coming into a Feast for Crows and kind of starting everything almost over again. Like we're getting a whole new story essentially that we have to pay attention to and we have to care about and sometimes i'm excited about it and sometimes i really hate it so <laughs> just depends <laughs> totally, on the totally. day it is fantastic to have another year on truther on the show right now i know that we're supposed to be talking about eris okart and brienne and nimble dick crab and podrick Payne and we shadwell can do that next week. and those bastards it's, but- it's hard to talk about melancholy chapters where you know plans fall apart when you have a you know, sorceress supervillain trying to take over the world. That's, you know, it's more of an attraction. It's true. 
it must have been Christmas, the day that The Forsaken was read oh, at Balticon. No and it was that chapter, because he could have read any kind of chapter, but that's the one, that's what you wanted. That was like your ammunition right there. If you go back to me on Twitter and Tumblr, it's like pages of all caps posts from me yeah. for that couple of days <laughs> where, it was, yeah, it really was like a, just a perfect dream come true. I wish I'd been there, but yeah, it was... It was it was a delight for sure. I tried to take notes and I lasted about 30 seconds before I just sat there with my mouth open. Yeah, that chapter just keeps upping the ante on you and an almost it almost becomes comedy by the end where it's like he gets the Valyrian steel armor and you almost have to laugh because he's oh, it's just this much badass in that chapter. Okay, (laughs) he's glorious. I mean, can we just talk about that chapter this week? Anyone? Maybe I'll talk about that chapter (laughs) for the rest of my days. How do you feel about release? Before or after the con or before or after the season? At this point, I would be delighted just to have an announcement this year. That's where my head is at at this point. Playing it safe. I mean, I mean, you know, I don't I, I really dislike the crowd that, you know, hammers him on Twitter and talks about him as, you know, betraying them or not doing like that. That really aggravates me. But I think, you know, it's also good to have like a healthy skepticism when he says it's going to be done this year. Because as he himself pointed out, he has said that about multiple books in the series many times, which is fine. He's, you know, they're really long books and I'm glad he spends as much time on them as they do. But me too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Especially again, that's why I love, I think, Feast and Dance. I'm glad he, this sounds terrible. I'm glad he went through such hell writing those books. I think it ultimately made them stronger. Um, and I'm glad he didn't go with the five-year gap thing because I think that would have been a terrible idea. Hannah is positive that he's waiting for us to finish the Feast with Dragons reading order on the podcast before Clearly. releasing I mean, he's got a, yeah, I think that's it's it. Just, it's just politeness. The man has the call. <laughs> it's really sweet. It's very adorable. <laughs> Unless we get the Winds of Winter early and the answers are offered to us, Emmett will be presenting at Con of Thrones the Eldritch Apocalypse. I mean, we're going to have to do it. The whole thing. We're oh, gonna yeah. Need some, have a big uh, exclamation point at the end and everything. A big exclamation point. We're going to need. I can't wait. You're on Greyjoy cosplayers. Not one, but a whole team of them. To, <laughs> I'll have to bring an army. This is true. An <laughs> army with interpretive dance to kind of give drama to the weight of the things that you're discussing and talking to the crowd about. So people need to get their cosplay ready now. Exactly. <laughs> we'll have like Bauhaus and Cure songs playing in the background the entire time. It'll be perfect. <laughs> <laughs> So we're talking about Feast for Crows and we're talking about how George R. R. Martin made these bold introductions with the Iron Islands and all these characters that became super important halfway through the story or late in the game, as you can say. And I think that Dorne is definitely one of those as well. And we spend a little bit of time and we've spent a little bit of time there already in A Feast for Crows. But I think that this chapter, The Queenmaker, we get a lot of answers about what Arianne has been planning and kind of what her ideas for Marcella are. And then we get this tragic ending at the end of this chapter. But I think that as we're talking about families and players that are going to be important to the end game, I've said this before and I feel like I say that all the time, but I just have such a hard time with Dorne. And I know that we've talked about this with the show and I know that we've talked about this with these chapters, but I think it's there's so much history and back lore and story here that's kind of hard to grasp in the beginning. And so the chapter is definitely interesting. Um, we get introduced to a lot of different characters and we get to learn more about a lot of different players. But I, I have a hard time believing, and maybe this is the point, that Arianne's whole idea to kind of change the game with Marcella is a little bit 
crazy um, and kind of far-fetched, but I think that that also may be part of the point of what George R. R. Martin is trying to say with this chapter. Yeah, I think you're you're right. Ariane definitely doesn't come off well in a lot of this chapter in terms of her planning. You know, for me, what's interesting about it is that, you know, she's got these ideas about it being about Dorne and about the relationship to the Iron Throne, and Marcella is the, the rightful heir by our laws, but her internal monologue is all about her personal relationships, all about her trying right. to get back at her dad mm-hmm. yeah. for abandoning her. And so, you know, I, I guess for me, it makes more sense that that would be a more irrational motivation if it's, you know, trying to deal with this personal familial thing. You might lash out in a way that m- might not make sense in terms of execution, but if that's really what's motivating you underneath, that might be why she does it. And that might be why it's not successful. In the end. Right. She's like, she's looking to start a war with half of Westeros based off of this idea that she's owed this birthright um, that she doesn't have and vengeance for her family and, and kind of against her, her father. And something that I think is interesting that as I thought about this chapter more and not maybe necessarily the first time I read it, but I like to read the chapters and then think about them for a day or so is when I first read this chapter, I was kind of thinking about Marcella and how she kind of shows up asking all these weird questions about why people are calling her your grace and everything. Yeah. And I think it's interesting though, because I think that she may be a little bit smarter than I originally gave her credit for, because I think she's coming into this also saying, well, this doesn't really make any sense to me, kind of what's going on. And I think that she gets, should get a little bit more credit for coming into this confused because I think that she is right to say, well, how does this fit into anything? What does this mean? And what's going on with Tommen kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. I feel kind of bad for her. As, as being called your grace, her, her first thought might be that my brother's dead. Like if they're calling me the queen, maybe something horrible yeah. happened to Tommen. Yeah, I think she, I mean, Marcel's an interesting mix where she's clearly the smartest of those three kids or like and certainly the most strongest willed and the way people talk about her is the best, but she still is, I think, allowed to be a believable kid for the most part, which is good because overly precocious children can get, you know, Irritating really quickly, especially just in fiction. <laughs> it was kind of an emotional r- roller coaster for me because Arian in this chapter is it's just she doesn't feel like the one that we met in the soiled night. She doesn't that doesn't feel like her. And and I know that you just um, you said you'd listen to that episode or did you read those two chapters before coming on today? I l- was listening just to the episode, but I read a little bit of the chapter along with it. Yeah. So how do you feel about that transition between uh, her in her bedchamber and seducing Eris O'Cart in that way into her now kind of already having what she wants because I felt George made a point to highlight the the measured coldness that she's giving toward him now and kind of being less softened by his japeries and more of just kind of seeing his his dullness as you know something I have to deal with while he's here. Right. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that's the that's what you get out of switching POVs from Aristarion. And I really like the Dorn and Iron Island storylines in part because you have these multiple POVs. You can kind of get everyone's perspective on everyone else instead of just you right. know one mm-hmm. character leading you through the story. And what I love about the Dorn storyline specifically is how you know it it starts off really kind of wide screen. You have a POV Ario Hoda who's like basic function in life is to be a POV. Like, that's what he lives to do. We just watch right. him, know things and absorb, you know, that's his whole life. And you get you get this huge spectrum of characters and all these potential different sources of threats. And then, like, then from there you go to the Soil Knight and then you learn what the real story of the plotline actually is, that the Sand Snakes are kind of a red herring and that it's really about Ariane. But you're in the POV of someone who is kind of being manipulated and is kind of self-involved and doesn't really get it and is out of his elements. So you're still kind of on the outside, 
And now with this chapter, you're kind of veering in closer because the actual protagonist of the story is the POV now. And yeah, I agree. I think you do get a different, you know, Ariane from the outside is, I mean, she's, she's definitely confident on the inside, but she's really in control when you see her from the outside through Eris's POV. Really in control. Really just right. dominating the scene and you're involved in it. And like here, like almost like right away, you're seeing in her, just from her POV, what the problems are that are going to crop up and why, what her short, like there's this, I love this moment at the opening of the chapter and I didn't realize the m- meaning of it until I reread it like long after I'd first read it. She's, you know, was, someone asked, someone asked her about, Oh yeah, Spotted Silva's talking to her about when she first came to the the well that they're at, and that Oberyn had brought her uh, with Tyene and Sorella, and that uh, and she was asked what she did, and she just thinks to herself, "I sat beside the well and pretended that some robber knight had brought me here to have his way with me, a tall, hard man with black eyes and a widow's peak." And I took into long time to realize, oh, she's talking about Oberyn. That's him, the black eyes and the widow's peak. That's this is her attraction to him, kind of. Filt, she says the memory made her uneasy. She's just kind of trying to filter that through this, you know, supposedly larger, bigger quest she's on now. And then she lies and said, I dreamed. And then the sun went down. I sat at Michael's feet and begged him for a story. So right away being in her mind, you know, gives you a different sense. Oh, she's not the completely in control person we saw in the previous chapter. She's got this, her own blind spots and her own backstory and problems going on and i think yeah that's i think that's a right. that's a great transition and and her beauty and the work that she does with it i feel like has kind of become a stigma almost in a way like working against her while being her greatest tool totally and there's a great parallel to that with cersei of course going on in the same book right. where she is yeah. using her wiles but you know ultimately that's what brings her down and ultimately like she's uh, you know when when she's she's queen but she's ultimately Treated as just any other powerless women under the control mm-hmm. of the High Sparrow. So, it's definitely part of it. We were able to draw that impression from Arianne in the last chapter from Eris's perspective. And we were able to certainly draw from this because we were inside of her head and we know specifically what her motivations are, what her memories were. What do you think George was doing here? Because the mystery, the, the plot, what's happening in Dorne, like you said, Red Herring with the Sand Snakes. Now we're here. The way that she's treating... Eris is different, but it's basically more of the same. They're on their mission. They've got friends. You know, what's what's the point here? What's the lesson that we're that we're gaining out of this, do you think? Well, for me, I think the change like the change keeps happening. Like that's what I love about the Dorna storyline. It sheds its skin constantly. Because at the end of this chapter, it twists again. Because the most mm-hmm. of this chapter sets up, it's gonna be Arian going to uh, the Hellholt, I think it is, or some castle. She's going to raise the banners there. Yeah. And that's okay. So we think, okay, this is the plot. And maybe Cersei's going to hear about this and there's going to be a war or something. But at the end of the chapter, that's not what happens at all. The plan completely falls apart and Eris dies and Orion gets dragged back to Sunspear. And then in her last chapter, it changes again at the end when we learn that uh, Duran sent Quentin to Dany and that that's been his motivation the whole time. It's the kind of like fall into knowledge thing that I think Martin does really well. And, you you know, you had that obviously back in the first book when it was, you know, you know, Ned is the protagonist. No, he's not. He's he's, he's getting killed. Or, you know, Sansa has this fantasy world that's just not going to happen. Or, you know, have this constant theme of like learning what what's really going on behind the curtain. And, I, you know, the Dorna storyline, I think, just keeps is like just a concentrated dose of that. Just keeps doing that over the course of four chapters. But I definitely agree with Hannah, though, that. There's just a lot and it moves so fast and mm-hmm. like a lot of the details kind of like either are 
there's either too many of them or they're just not supported because they don't have time. So it's it's really ambitious and I love w- what it's doing for the most part. But I think he, there is, I definitely agree, he bit off more than he could chew at certain points. And you can definitely right. tell. I think we don't have the opportunity. I mean, we get, how many chapters do we get to spend with Zorn and Feast for Crows? Four, like yeah. Not enough of an opportunity to really feel this out. And I, I think that one thing that I do think is done really well with this between this chapter and the last is that Eris's death is a little bit more meaningful because we had the opportunity to spend so much time with him in the previous chapter with Dorn. Um, but that's exactly what I'm saying and kind of why I've had issues with the Dorn part particularly is because I just think that there is so much here and that we don't A, get to do it justice or B, get enough time to really, really care about how this is going to change or shift the central plot. And I think that those are answers that come a little little bit um, as we continue to read the story. But in this point of time, especially, I just, it, it is difficult for me to get on board so this didn't work for you guys it's not that i don't like the chapter oh, i love the chapter on the whole yeah i do like the chapter and do think that the story is interesting but i found myself reading through this chapter missing as i always do the central plot and i and i i, I don't like saying the central plot because i know that that is much broader than this, i think in these la- last two <laughs> yeah. books especially it's really hard to talk about what is important and what isn't sure, and what's sure. gonna play the end game but at this point, I in a feast for crows, and at this point in our reading order, I just I miss what's happening in King's Landing. I miss Sansa, um, all those types of things, and so, um, so yeah. I mean, it's not that I don't like this chapter, and I I think that George R. R. Martin does an incredible job with storytelling, and I think that we have some interesting characters with. Um, I mean, we have. Dark stars in this Yay. story. Yeah. In this I mean, come chapter. on. <laughs> so you can't, but it, it's hard. I mean, it's hard to, it's hard. It's just hard. I love this chapter on the whole. I love Ariana's a POV. I love the twist it takes to the end and how that's uh, done. I completely agree that they give Eris's death a lot of weight, which is surprising for a character who is just, you know, not that random. I mean, he's, yeah, yeah, he's, he's a rando in a red shirt and, you know, that's kind of his thing. And it's actually amazing how much Martin kind of rings out of that as far as just drama goes and, and Ariane's internal guilt over it and dealing with it is really great. But yeah, I agree. S- some of the the specifics don't track. Like her, Darkstar is fun. I'm sure we'll talk more about him. But her other, Ariane's other friends, Garen, Dre, and Spotted Silva, for me are among like the flatline, most flatline characters in the story. Right. Like who are they and, and why do they care? They're described in the beginning and we kind of sit around and get the impression that they have they're close and they grew up together and they've got this great history between them in the beginning when they're all kind of sitting around and, and hanging out before right, right. Marcella comes and before they start writing but there's no depth to that like that doesn't really mean anything to me and you know that could just be my own inability to catch on but I also just think that there's missed opportunity to develop this storyline i felt the same yeah i mean it's, it literally says dre and spotted silva were her dearest friends like it just says it's that. Like, what does that mean i would love to <laughs> learn about what that means you exactly. know i'd love to if, if we're gonna spend time with ariana if we're gonna spend time in dorn if we're gonna spend time with all of this then let's care about it totally and i think her relationship with duran is really strong and for me that's like the the through line that keeps it going but mm-hmm. again martin's so in love with the structure and the reveals that 
we don't know that that's the story until like the end of this chapter. So we don't, you're right. I mean, for me, it's, you know, it's powerful when it hits, but it's like, you know, you go back to the early parts in the Game of Thrones. How, how long do we spend at Winterfell at the first, in the early part of the first book with like all the different POVs and getting such a strong sense of everyone's relationship. And it's on one level, it's impressive that Martin can like condense it and like do it in a four chapter storyline and introduce you to this new part. But on the other hand, there are, you know, you, you lose stuff along the way. Yeah. I couldn't help but think and. I don't know if I want to bring this up, but you can't help but think about the show and sure. what happened in the last season. And I know that Dorne really got the short end of the stick. And I know that how they treated what they decided to portray was really poorly done. But can you blame them, though? I mean, this is a lot to be able to adapt and to be able to bite off. And The first two chapters were promising. They were very, very promising. And I love the princess in the tower. And, I, and I, I like the implications of what they're doing here. But the kind of just like you said, with, with the friends and Ariel just kind of popping out, which I, I really loved, by the way. But I love that, too. He's spooky in a weird Zen kind of way. Yeah. He, yeah. he seems like he could teleport almost. It, it's strange because I love the chapter, too. But I I kind of feel the same way about the Brienne chapter. Just mm-hmm. a, a lot of the, the time that Dick spent on Cracklaw Point lore and... Uh, some of it felt gratuitous, and, and I'm usually the type that's voracious for any of the, the drippings that I can get uh, from from the extra stuff from the plot. You know what I mean? The, the smaller details that make it feel like a more realized world to me is, you know, this is this is the, the main reason we all love A Song of Ice and Fire so much. But I just didn't feel anything for her friends. And I took notes as normal, you know, and I, I read it and I cared about it. And I, I like that Andre shortened his name to Dre. You know, I like kind of, I'm trying to feel and understand who they are, but uh, it's so abrupt and knowing where it leads and not knowing if a circle's back or not. Maybe, maybe that'll help things later, you know, because I know that George is writing broadly and not just saying this chapter, it needs to be blah, 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 because it, you know what I mean? He, sure, it's, sure. it's a full volume that he's looking at here. So I, I appreciate the scale and that's why I don't have the, the audacity to see something and go, well, I think that should have been different because I trust the amount of time that he's putting into him and the amount of understanding that he has of his characters but i'm happy I just, for you <laughs> i i really liked the way she was powerful in eris's point of view and then you know being inside of her head in this chapter and and kind of seeing where some of her motivations were and and understanding her attachment to the way that she manipulates people uh to get what she wants and i'm just thinking with all the other great players in the game and the implications of everything else that's happening it felt like just another little lesson that george was peppering into us that she may be you know in line for this there might be a a really great history with a character that we like she knows oberon very well they're family members it's also rich and tied in quentin's out east with daenerys Dorne matters. This family matters. Everything matters. But at the end of the day, we have people playing a much stronger game that are playing it on a much higher level. And I see this kind of weak attempt at a coup. And it's like Darkstar knew the whole time this was going to happen. It's like he was always ready for just this plan is not very good. I'm a Dane and this is fun and I'm drinking lemon water. Sure, just, sure. It'll be great. I do. I do think that I mean, you make you bring up a good point. And I think that maybe part of my disillusionment is just the fact that her plan is so there's no way that it's going to work. And so I think that maybe on top of being grumpy about Dorne, period, adds into this. Add, add this storyline into it where she has these grand hopes and dreams that fail so quickly 
I mean, maybe we're supposed to feel that way. There is the thing where the Martells are about failure and that all of them just keep falling short. You know, Ogren comes the closest to succeeding, but he still gets his head smashed in. And then Ariane fails here. And then Quentin fails in the East. And Duran kind of failed by sending Quentin. And there is, you know, it's, there's a lot of, it's, you know, very, can be very emotionally powerful, like with the end of this chapter or with Quentin's failure. But, you know, it becomes kicking the puppy at some point where you're just hurting this family, like, relentlessly because mm-hmm. obviously bad things happen to the Starks too. But again, the difference is we spend so much more time with them so it doesn't feel like just re- just terrible things happening to them. Whereas with Dorne, right. it happens so quickly that you do kind of get the sense that the point is the universe is chaos, which is just, you know, not a yeah. not a particularly great point and kind of a redundant one at this point. It's like Isn't the, that the, the point book is called the Feast, a for, Feast crows? for Crows. Yeah, yeah. that is true. <laughs> like, and there is, I do love that to a large degree. Like I love the end of this chapter when it's like Ariane thinks the mystery is who told who I was so careful. How did he know? And Ari just says it doesn't matter. Someone told yeah, someone always that's tells. Such someone a good always ending. tells. Every that plan breaks so- down, which I like is then. Because, I mean, that almost works because I'm so uninterested in her friends that I don't care which one of them told. So it is kind of nice to have the story say, yeah, fine, you don't have to. This is not a mystery you particularly have to be invested in. And the point is more her <laughs> reaction to it. And I do like that. You notice how she goes deep into consideration about the beauty and the uh, the availability of Gerald. Indeed, he's please, got those cheekbones, <laughs> those smashing, smashing cheekbones. Not call him Darkstar, but only call him Gerald because I feel like he would hate that. <laughs> He really would. <laughs> I am the knight. I'm of the knight. I love it so much. Like, it sounds like Arm of the Knight, like it's sh- like he's Christian Bale Batman or something. <laughs> but but he's saying it to it, try to impress a 10-year-old and it doesn't work. I, I love when he's like, how, when they're talking about, I love that whole exchange between Marcella and, and Gerald <laughs> when he's, <laughs> when Gerald. she's talking about the Sword of the Morning and are you the new sword of the morning? You know, Arthur Dana is this larger than life figure. Um, and Darkstar just goes, why does, why is it that my cousin is the only one that only Dane that anyone ever remembers? And it's like, well, cause he probably didn't roll around <laughs> the calling way that you are. He doesn't call himself yeah. Darkstar. That's exactly that. Yeah. That reminded <laughs> me of Victorian a lot. Like that. Oh, Euron gets all the credit for things. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so you guys don't like Darkstar then, right? I, I find they him don't hilarious. like him. He's just funny. funny. Yeah, he's, he's funny. He, is, he feels like a parody of himself. He's, he really does. And A Feast is full of those guys. You got like Lynn Corbray and Lazy uh-huh. Leo and uh, the Darian or whatever, the Night's Watchman who betrays Sam. It's like he's full of these selfish, supercilious, performative assholes, which is I like because not, not every villain has to be grandiose or complex. Sometimes they really are just petty people you're supposed to laugh at i'm such a dope honestly i fell for it i thought he was so gallant <laughs> i thought he's so mysterious you loved it when he was like i'm of the night would yeah, you, sw- he, you would swoon wouldn't <laughs> was you? it the lemon water I, I think it was i'm drinking lemon water right now and i was drinking lemon water when i read it and i was like hmm he's not it but that but he so would relatable. do that right okay first off re- hashtag relatable second off he would do that wouldn't he you know, mm, like yeah. everyone would be drinking, sharing a skin of wine or whatever. He's like, I'll just have the the lemon water. He needs to well, stay some, sharp because he's up the speculate, night. Some people speculate that he did that because he knew what was coming. And so he wanted to be on his A game, which I don't know. He, the other person he reminds me of is, did you put yourself through the Fantastic Four movie a couple of years ago? The modern no. one with the horrible reshoots? Mm-mm. You're on your own. <laughs> no, it's, you are better off. You are in a better world for having not put yourself through that. But yeah, like. 
Darkstar, the, the, the Doctor Doom in that movie is just this pure angsty guy who just says humanity's terrible and deserves to die. Like, Darkstar reminds me of just that guy. Like, he says Orion's plan's gonna fail not because he knows it, but because he's just, you know, the emo guy who thinks systems fail in the world. He's just that, that kind of, he's much more shallow, I think, than a guy who knows things. Like, there were theories that he's working for Varys and stuff, and I just, he doesn't strike me as that guy. Like, Tyena Merriweather strikes me as, like, you know, that character, the one who yeah. knows all the conspiracies and can get in and manipulate you while you think she's working for you. Darkstar just, I think he, I mean, he's got, again, the lines like, he's he's about to, he's, he's about to go piss and someone says, don't, you know, careful of the snakes. And he says, I was weaned on venom, which I cannot say without giggling. Yeah. Because that is so <laughs> adorable. And it's like, he's, he's like mini Oberon. He's like trying to be that guy trying to be that badass and he's failing miserably you're talking mad shit on dark star right now i love it <laughs> like he's, i mean that's thoroughly enjoyable but like i cannot i cannot read those lines without without giggling he just yeah and, and i do love but yeah and he's got the cheekbones and i love the whole paragraph where Orion just describes how pretty he is right mm-hmm. well you gotta hand it to him oh yeah he's definitely gerald gerald is very pretty and i love i love we should definitely all call him that at <laughs> gerald all time. is pretty yeah. Yeah, that makes him that just so very pretty, man. ruins his aura immediately. <laughs> Poor Gerald. Honestly, name. I feel so bad because people do call him Dark Star. Now we're just it's just like we're taking him back. Now it's just all of his progress is gone because everyone's going to call him Gerald. I think he can Gerald. use a little. He can use a little humility. I think he's yeah. going to be okay. You're right. It's like calling Neo Tom. It just kind of brings him down to earth a bit. I think it's good for everyone. Yeah, we're doing him a favor. Mostly, it's good for Gerald. <laughs> good old Gerald. <laughs> so his caricature aside. Aerosokart exuded what some could call, you know, cartoon night ship, but it worked on me again. I may be, uh, I don't know, just maybe I was extra susceptible to it because I knew we were going to record this episode. and I was really excited. But when he when he looked at her and he gave her that last look, mm-hmm. where he was just kind of like it was it's just that last longing look and then and then rides off and you know, just just him saying no and that, you know, she wouldn't be taken to Eger's last breath. I don't know. It got me. It, the Eris thing doesn't bother me. Like And like I said, I, I like the fact that we got to spend some time with him because in the last chapter we read about him, we learned all about how all he wants is to, or he's so worried about going down in history as somebody who broke his vows, right? you know, and how he continues to wear his white cloak and he has, he's carrying some of this guilt sort of for what he's been through or what he's done. And so he's faced with this moment where he sees that he's, failed both Marcella and Arianne and he might as well go out in the bravest air quotes bravest way possible by just he just charges right into the center of it all and so I can I can buy that just because we understand how much he worries about failing in general and I mean I guess you could argue that him leaving Marcella is failing but i yeah. liked it no i like it too it's a suicide by cop thing and it's it's interesting to consider like on the one hand it is sad like what would like you know what leads you to do that what leads you to want to die like that and think that is your best mm-hmm. option that's kind of you know that says something about knighthood and like you know the whole as jamie will tell you over and over the contradictions that it leaves you with and how you can't follow your vows and be your own person and all that stuff but yeah it's also yeah, he's also, he is also just riding to his death for no reason. And like, so yeah, Ariane, yeah, there's the line, Ariane Martel had never seen anything half so gallant or half so stupid. Or so stupid. <laughs> Which is just perfect. I love that. Yeah, because it, it's both. It's both, 
you know, your heart's in your throat and it's just sad and terrible. And it's also really, really dumb. A series of yeah. decisions that this man has made with his life. Yeah. Do you think that it was partially motivated by his lust to have her desire him and think that he's brave and worthy and honorable? I wouldn't oh, be surprised. For sure. For sure. For sure. You look at him throughout this whole chapter and you look at his last chapter. I mean, he was trying on. so hard. I felt He's so bad. So it was hard. so sad. And I like that. There's, he was trying so hard. There's an interesting thing about like knighthood where you're supposed to be like kind of virtuous and chaste. And you know, that's where a lot of the Kingsguard vows come from. And, you know, that's supposed to be that your image. But at the same time, you are supposed to exude sexuality enough that the women want you. But then you don't sleep with them. And that's how you prove you're virtuous. There's all there's so many stories about that. So, you're, you know, the, the trope is kind of built on this duality. And I like that Eris isn't like he's not he, do, he doesn't have that kind of contradiction where it, like it's realistic, like a lifetime of celibacy has left him sexually confused and not confident, which mm-hmm. makes perfect sense because he's completely inexperienced and he's basically a kid in this regard, which is why it's so no. easy for Orion to get him. I know why my princess wears a veil, Sir Eris said, exactly. as she was fastening it to the temples of her copper helm. Elsewise, her beauty would outshine the sun above. And then it goes on to say, <laughs> she wondered how long her white knight had been polishing his ponderous gallantry. Sir Eris was pleasant company abed, but wit and he were strangers. I love it. You can hear the crickets when he says that, just echoing mm-hmm. off the sand. And it's like, yeah, well, I can that see him work, thinking so up. So I'll just ride into my own death. Exactly. I can see him staying up all night, working on that line, changing each word, think she's going to love this. And just, no, no, not at all. So there's lessons here. <laughs> basically, basically, George R. R. Martin wrote us a chapter of Pretenders. This guy wants to be Euron. This guy wants to be, uh, this guy wants a nickname that sticks like Lord Voldemort. Yeah, she that's wants a really to be good queen. point. Friends that don't quite come up to par in our care levels, their names or whatever, their stories are more. It's just, hmm. And then in the end, Ariahoda, arm gone with my long axe, head gone with my long axe, and then just shrugs yeah. at the end. This is what Sorry, happens. little princess. Sorry. Got to go back to Sunspear. Good jaunt. It's like she just got in trouble. It's it's the classic tale of a uh, you know, kid running away and causing sure. menace, yeah, except she's old yeah. and lots of people die. Yeah, and there's and Marcella has blood streaming from somewhere we don't yet oh, know. Oh, God, that, that scene is so horrible. Yeah. Ariane is in the sand just throwing up and screaming and... Ariola, literally the line is that he shrugs <laughs> which is good. yeah it's great i like the weird thing about Ariahoda is i was thinking about he's the only pov character who's like he's happy with his life he doesn't want anything to change he's not looking for anything new he's not trying to prove anything he has his job as he can as he sees it in his role and he's happy with that which is kind of nice but on the other hand in the end of this chapter it kind of comes off as really chilling that he just says it's kind of emotionless and it's just like, yeah. yeah, this is how, you know, trust me, I've watched everything my entire life. This is how everything goes. Well, I don't know if you've seen the TV show, but don't I be too scared been. of him. He goes down pretty easy. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, I mean. That's <laughs> awful. Yeah, that's a shame. Painful like I joke. Said, as I, Which, you know, as I'm we, saying. You were talking about how difficult this would be to adapt for TV. And I definitely agree in part because like, especially the first two thirds, three quarters of this chapter is so much backstory and so much, uh, you know, information about the country and the history. And like, it would be a lot of Ariane stuff is internal and that's hard to get across. But the ending is so cinematic. And I can just imagine the music cue when Ario steps out on the deck and like the white cloak, you know, fluttering. And like, there's a, that's made for television. So I think that could have been done well. What would have been easy to adapt for television is Hoda's entire life instead of what he got instead. Indeed. 
I, yeah, I love about him. Like he, he remembers that his family sold him to the monks. And he's like, yeah, I get why they did that. There were too many of us. I was big. I ate a lot. <laughs> I would have done the same thing, which is just kind of great. We're very proud that today's episode is brought to you by the enhanced editions of George R. R. Martin's Game of Thrones books that are available exclusively on iBooks, including the just released A Feast for Crows enhanced edition of which we're reading today. It contains interactive character maps, hundreds of author notes, beautiful illustrations, a sigil guide, and much more. All these extras bring this thrilling adventure to life and help you stay on top of these epic storylines. And whether you're fluent in Dothraki or a reader who's digging into the series for the first time, these enhanced editions are the best way to experience this unforgettable series. So please follow along with us in our reading, get the whole series, including a Feast for Crows enhanced edition exclusively on iBooks at apple.co slash game of thrones not available in all countries so just thinking about ariane and this whole mission that's basically been a doomed mission not from the start but i think that we kind of get this feeling and we've been having this conversation about her inner dialogue and in her choices whether or not they're in the right place and there's a couple things i know we always try to draw parallels between the chapters and i think that from the be- from the outset comparing ariane and brianne is kind of crazy because you can't they can't be more different and i think especially in this chapter the way they use and talk about sex and the way that they go about their missions are completely the opposite of each other but at the same time they're both these women who are kind of wandering through the wilderness on these doomed missions centered around young women which I don't know. That sounds weird. No, but, I mean, they both have. That's true. I hadn't thought of that. That's a good this, point. They both have this mission to, and uh, Brienne's looking to find Sansa and Arianne's here to kind of queen Marcella, um, which I think is interesting. And like I said, I, I think that the parallels between them kind of stop there. But a lot of what we read in both these chapters is just a lot of wandering through a lot of middle of nowhere. And most of Brian's chapter was that there was much less action, albeit some at the end. This she did true. take down some of those brave companions though. At the end though, that was pretty cool. Yeah. Brian's sword fights in this book are so great. This one and the one with Rorge later, were just so, so oh, well gosh, done. Yes. It was eerie though. The whispers, even she was a little scared. I think this chapter does good to give the flip side to the interior monologues that we have, or just the thoughts of Ariane and Brienne on how sex comes into their life, where on one hand it's a tool and on the other hand it's a bad memory and it's something to deal with. And they they oppose each other and are similar to each other in different ways. And that's cool. That's great. They get their own chapter. Cool things are happening. They're complex characters, you know, like they have different motivations. They have different tools. They had different lives. But any guy in these chapters, and I think that George almost comedically like drives in the point because he's consistently like all that those guys are talking about is fucking her corpse or her nose or just whatever else, anything else mm-hmm. at that mm-hmm. point. And it's just almost, it's it's cartoonish, but it's a really interesting point because we're with these two characters. And while we don't necessarily think that they're being very smart because if you just think the entire way up to the whispers it's like there is no way that dantos is here there's no way that he's here with sansa 
the nimble right. dick has 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 made up whichever parts to the story it seems to us but it actually turns out to be quite true which again kind of it kind of spins that point and makes it almost moot but it's not because george is creating an atmosphere rather than giving you hard facts but he's giving you these two complex women that are dealing with things differently and that like i said we don't just automatically give full respect to because they're not just walking in and saying girl power i own this moment they're they're handling things in their own way as good as they can because they're 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 not caricatures they're actual real characters but these these guys are just so much simpler they're very much a cliche in they this are. chapter and it feels their brutality it's not inaccurate though those are the kind of people that populate this world this is true what i like about the brave companions in this chapter is like, okay, in Clash and Storm, there were this active menace on the land. And they are in Feast Till to a certain extent. But in Clash and Storm, they were like, you know, stealing everyone's stuff and playing one side against the other. And in this chapter, they're trying to leave. They're just trying to get out. They're, they're, I mean, I'm not saying we should be sympathetic with them remotely, but it's a different position that they're in. Where they're not like, you know, the emblem of, you know, war and horribleness that they were in the previous I mean, books. They are in, in a context of Brienne, but like it's interesting to consider how they got in this position. Like like you're saying, it's a kind of a flipping of tropes. They were the ones who were lied to by Nimble Dick. Like they were the ones mm-hmm. that got screwed over. And yep. you know, so they they kind of they come off still as unbelievably horrible and, you know, obviously horrifically sexually violent to Brienne, but also kind of more pathetic than they were in previous books. Where they were in like a huge menace looming over Arya's and Jamie's storyline. And now I, I think it fits in with overall in A Feast for Crows. You get the sense that just everything is dying and collapsing and falling apart. And even the villains are just kind of out of control. And a shadow of their former selves. Exactly. Like you have Tywin replaced yeah. with Cersei and like that whole regime is just falling to pieces. It kind of reminds me of um, the end of Wizard and Glass when, mm. when the villains are kind of humbled, you know, at the Emerald Palace. It's like, hold on a second. You're saying that it was this way the whole time and now all of a sudden... Uh, we're changing things and that's kind of what George is doing here with the Brave Companions and he does it another time when we get the follow up with uh, well I guess Brienne round two round three I'm not really sure she's able to kind of take her poetic vengeance out later on in our reading order and like I said I'm really excited to get to it it's true but uh, it wasn't completely safe though because the opening move is taking that morning star and exploding uh, Dick's knee. Yeah, and I know so that we don't love violent. Dick, but it's very violent. Very, yeah. very, you do very feel gruesome. a little bad for him. Yeah, because like you said, it's a twist because he was, you know, Dick's also not a good person is trying to steal from her. And there's also creepy sexual things going on there with Brienne that he brings up. Was that just our head or do you really think that that was the case? I mean, I, don't, I mean, the way, I mean... Like you said about Brienne 3, a lot of the running themes in A Feast for Crows, Brienne's A Feast for Crows storyline is how men think about Brienne and how men treat Brienne and how there's a lot of variety, but there's some bad common themes in bad themes in common. And um, a lot of it is just remarking about her sexually as though she's either property or a freak or both. And, you know, Dick certainly is not as horrendous in that regard as the Brave Companions, but you know, it is a connecting theme that comes out in all these various ways, like with Randall Tarley and about like, you know, and Hyle Hunt and the and the men in Renly's camp and how like their, you know, their sexual sport of her and Randall's blaming her for it are just two sides of the same coin and part of the same problem. I think I think that's a running theme through her storyline on A Feast for Crows that even the like there's really only, only Podrick is really the only person who the only man who really truly 
treats her as a person and even he can't decide what gender to call her yeah <laughs> and like everyone else like even when she gets to the quiet aisle like the men are still so weirded out by her and not comfortable with her and these are you know decent large decent people or at least they are mm-hmm. now and like so that you get the range from that to like Kyle hunt who's better than the brave companions but he's still so contemptuous towards her and calls her names constantly yeah but yeah nimble dick's part in that is interesting because as you said he was ultimately telling the truth and like you said hannah his death does make you feel for him in that moment because it's so brutal and visceral and just like instant and quick and just not not with yeah. a weapon we're used to and not in an area we're used to seeing like to you know, anyone fought. who didn't read the chapter they finished him off with a smash in the face yeah he just, face just he just screamed his head just in case you wanted that detail <laughs> exactly so you're left at chapters then with like okay you what does this mean for your quest now like is it you know for me like the overall question here is like does being a true knight mean saving the princess or does it mean trying to save the princess yeah because that's what she's like what's the point yeah exactly is that and it definitely you know like you said about brienne three there is the frustration that we know where sansa is it's not what mm-hmm. you're looking at all Right. If you just go there, you'll you recognize her immediately. But for me, it works because then it leaves her with the question of how do I, how do I deal with this? How do I react? How do I, if, if knighthood is not going to be rewarded, how, what does it mean to be a knight? And that's the whole point of these chapters. It's not, can Brienne find Sansa? George gives us the answer. It's about that question. It's about being a knight. It's about coming to terms with who she is and what she wants to be. And, you know, Podrick sprinkled in there a little bit. Yeah, and there's definitely a Don yeah. Quixote, Sancho Panza, you know, that, there's definitely oh, that backstory there for sure. And I think that's why we get so much of this inner dialogue with her. And as you're talking about earlier, Emmett, with her history with men in her life, as we see through all of her chapters in A Feast for Crows, and as we see also in this chapter, and she thinks back to the melee at Bitterbridge and all the men that she fought, something about how she rode down all of her suitors in one day, which... Mm. I love that image. But I think that so while she's on this search for Sansa, she is able to start to tease out kind of what she's been through and and who she's going to be. And she's had the opportunity to in her, I guess you can call it her quest to actually become a knight. She has a chance to figure all of that stuff out and, and to use what has happened to her as a strength and as a motivation to be better and be different. Um, which I think is good enough in and of itself. Like we said, like like we mentioned, it's frustrating because we know where Sansa is, and it's it's hard to read this and not yell at the page and just be like, just you know, turn around, just go somewhere else. Like you could easily find her, but I think that the the right point is is made that this isn't necessarily about her finding Sansa, but what's the cliche catchphrase? It's not the it's about the journey, not about the destination. Exactly right, which is could not be more literal in the case of this particular yeah. storyline. Yeah, or the yeah. books, exactly. Right, or, exactly. or the books as a whole. But I mean, I think that's. I think there's a lot of interesting stuff that comes out of this chapter. I think that some of it can easily be brushed over as kind of boring, just because they are wandering through quite a bit. But even just these conversations that Brienne is having, Brienne and Patrick are having with Nimble Dick as they're making their way in the beginning, and all this history and back lore about. Sir Clarence Crab versus Galadon. He loves Cracklaw Point. Uh, yeah. Like he yeah. is high I love that on stuff. It. Awesome. Yeah. I think it's interesting, and I think that this whole magic sword theme that runs through this chapter is really funny, and I love how it it comes up as as she heads into 
the last couple uh, paragraphs, but I don't know where I'm going with any of that. I just, it was an interesting chapter. Um, and I think that it's, like you said, it's easy to get discouraged with Brienne, but versus what we just talked about in Dorne, because we know Brienne, it's much more interesting to be part of her wanderings because we feel so much more for her, I think, as a character. With Dorne, yeah, you're trying to figure out character and story at the same time. Like, because it's, things are happening, but you're also just trying to find your footing in the POV. Whereas with Brienne, we already, I mean, it's different with her as a POV, of course, but we already have a foundation with her and a relationship with her and we know her, so. And all these characters are people we know who who are coming up and even in her memories she talks about loris tyrell and she thinks about renly and jamie and um even she's always thinking about jamie though i know (laughs) i try not to anyway (laughs) Um. (laughs) those are the sapphire isles jamie (laughs) (laughs) try not to dive into that but you know we we've seen all these people before and we're familiar with with their storylines Okay, so what did you guys think about that werewood tree? Hmm. I mean, is there is there some scrying being done? Is this a point of interest? Can we travel here? Can someone travel here? This is the one from the from Jamie's, right? The Storm of Swords. No, there was this werewood tree here. Oh, the, oh at, they said werewood dream. I'm sorry. Yeah, sure. Oh yeah, the tree at the the whispers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I love the yeah the whispers as a whole is a really interesting weird place i love the yeah though there's the weirwood mythology there's the the squishers backstory which is so weird and cool yeah those are crazy yeah that's i think this comes out of nowhere which is in the I, I like the development of those those kind of local stories because it's like you know brienne you know that's what brienne can hope for too really ultimately end of the day right is to have the stories told about the great, you know, knight Sir Milady who wandered the land and saved, Sir Milady. And saved peasants. <laughs> like, you know, she's, you know, she's, they're talking about the local stories and like, you know, Dick's bringing up his, the, the weirdness and all the, just the kind of crazy details. And he's just kind of lost in the surface of it and just kind of the, the awesomeness of it. And then Brienne brings up every place has its local heroes. And where I come from, there's one called Galadon of Morn, the perfect knight. And, you know, he had a sword that he would... And not use against a mortal man for it was so potent as to make any fight unfair. And Crab thought that was hilarious. The perfect fool, he sounds like. What's the point of having some magic sword if you don't bloody well use it? Honor, she said. The point is honor. And that only made him laugh the louder. Classic. Exactly. It's great. So you have these cool backstories, but it's kind of, it is bringing out character stuff and kind of the deeper themes of knighthood that her story is concerned with. And I like her having, because she doesn't have Jamie in her storyline anymore. So she does have, she needs someone to push back on her and she needs someone to actually engage with and bring out what she really thinks which is what jamie was really useful for in terms of her character so she, she needs she needs someone to be a dick so to speak in her story i think sometimes just Limble to dick it's a tough balance she needs she she doesn't need people to be horrible to her but she needs a foil like she needs someone to bounce off of mm-hmm. someone to argue with exactly exactly and podrick who i love is just cannot do that because he can't really get through a sentence He's a squire. He can fight. That's about all there is. So deeply, but he can't. Can we talk about this Podrick moment where they get to the whispers and (laughs) Podrick immediately is like, I can hear them. I can hear the heads whispering. Oh, yeah, I can hear them. (laughs) And (laughs) like literally the moment they roll in and Brian's like, well, they're probably not heads. But (laughs) she's like, I hear something. It's probably just the waves. Podrick's like, no, no, no. I, I hear them. Oh, yeah. Whenever Podrick is described with his eyes big and round, I can just picture them on his face. He's so sweet. On his piebald Ramsey. Exactly. Bless. He's the the best of squires as she's the best of knights. And and it's fun to see them together. You know, even though we just went up a hill, 
I really like these chapters in a feast for crows. I just, the atmosphere is building. And I, I liked the, the narrative release of just the, it almost seems too random that three henchmen from who plagued us so much in a storm of swords would just be here. But, um, it was cathartic seeing Some her take care justice. of him. And she was, I mean, vicious laugh. Yeah. Laugh, Shagwell just, especially. Just yeah. Crazy. I mean, this was, this was pretty violent brand of Tarth. Which was kind of nice to see, which is and how odd she cuts to off. say. Whose who's hand does she cut off? And she thinks that it's for Timian's. Jamie. Timian's. She cuts off his hand and in her mind, she's like, that's for Jamie. Yeah, and that was she awesome. finishes him off. They gave us an update on what Rorge and the crew were doing. So right. just general hell raising, raising Cain and hell, killing people where they can, handling things at salt pans. And in this reading order, we keep getting word of Sandor Clegane doing some stuff around there so it's nice to hear some some info from the other direction that gets us kind of on the on the grips of detective work and figuring things out on our own because it's all kind of happening sort of like it was in a storm of swords the stuff that eventually happens with Brienne and this area of westeros just kind of plodding around being a hedge knight kind of it's like they're not done with each other and you thought that they would have been done with each other but here here they are right now with the whispers yeah it's true and i make you know they you know Brienne and, you know, is emblematic of the knight you want protecting the small folk and the bloody mummers are emblematic of why you need a knight around to protect the small folk. So, it, you know, there is, it's, it is very intimate. It is very personal. But, yeah, I think for me, there is a kind of resonance to it where, like, this is symbolic of the overall battle in the Riverlands and of just, you know, and it's kind of just wasted this point and maybe out of nowhere and it's just kind of random from a plot perspective. But, you know, in the moment for me, it kind of... There, there's some yeah there's some real weight to it especially you know like you said when she evokes jamie because that definitely that definitely gives the context to this fight where it might otherwise have just been a random fight mm-hmm. i had something that i wanted to ask you I, I think it was in reference of uh of the forsaken in a way not directly i can't remember if it was from this chapter or last i you don't want to ask about brianna and jamie fan fiction that we've all read we haven't i would read that i haven't read that <laughs> he swears he's never read Brian and jamie fanfic he promised <laughs> never <laughs> Well, this is really random. I mean, this, I'll just cut this out of the show. But did you notice that George put devil grass in uh, Doran? Oh, that's true. Oh, it's just from it's from the Dark Tower. They smoke it and like yes, chew it and do whatever they can to it. And it grows in sort of arid desert areas. And I was like, hmm, interesting. There's a Harry Potter reference in this chapter. It's near the beginning. Let me find it. It's some fandom lore that George R. R. Martin and J.K. Rowling got in an argument over the Hugo Awards. Oh, and right, so right, he right. puts a stab at her. Let me. It sounds pretty awesome. This is intriguing. I had no idea. Yeah. yeah. Let me it find it. It hurts my feelings because my two favorite authors don't. Mom, Dad, Come please on. don't fight. <laughs> please don't fight. <laughs> um, when she's thinking about the melee, it's on four or three, and she's going through some of these men, and one of them's name is Harry, and another one has the name Potter, and then they have a scar on their head. Oh, damn! Which is meant to be like a stab at Joe because. Goblet of Fire won the Hugo into whenever that was, early 2000s, over sure. Storm of Swords. And she didn't show up to collect the award. And Ouch. George R. Martin being the con man that he is, not con man, someone who likes going to cons is what I mean, yes, was really offended by that sure. and tried to take a stab at her. Listen, George, if you'd, if you'd like to tell us about it, we'd love to have you on the show. George, you can't do more damage to Harry Potter than Cursed Child did. There's no point. Oh, yeah. God. <laughs> you can't. Get us started. I've never heard it called Cursed Child, but that's pretty I like, accurate. That's what, I like pronouncing it that way because it just feels more pretentious, which is, fits that play perfectly. I gave my copy away. 
Anyway, it's at the beginning of the chapter and, and it talks about some knights. So take that, uh, I thought JK that was Rowling. interesting. Yeah, I mean, I guess like that's really rude, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> Damn, I'm trying to find it now. I just want everyone to be best friends. Let it me... is fun when he gets out his football rage via the text. That is always enjoyable. Oh, here it is. Here it is. Here it is. Let me read the, the paragraph. So does the melee at Betterbridge sets in the melee at Betterbridge. She had sought out her suitors and battered them one by one. Pharaoh and Ambrose and Bushy, Mark, Melendro and Raymond Nayland and Will the Stork. She had ridden over Harry Sawyer and broken Robin Potter's head oh, or damn. Robin Potter's helm, giving him a nasty scar. Well, that is. Yeah, that's blunt. They're not just there. They're getting their butts kicked. Well, so that's that. So while we're on the subject of references, the old man in the river mentioned in the last chapter oh yeah right, how, he right. Was, how he was kind of a god right for the for the green blood which is i will say in terms of Ariane's friends i think it is interesting that she has this hippie friend garen who just pulls up and down the green blood and that kind of that element is interesting it's not really done anything with but that's just kind of different we saw the old man of the river in Tyrion's chapter yeah that was or awesome what, what could have been him I, I read that and i think is this a is this kind of a precursor just kind of a promise that a kraken wouldn't be too crazy i can hope man i can hope it's you know multiple multiple people mentions mentioned kraken stirring and that does that does warm the cold tentacle cockles of my heart so a man can dream <laughs> i mean if a turtle can be that big you know yeah cool. i mean I mean, anything is possible why can't a drowned god be that big i'm just saying i'm just saying is all all right let's do owns my own does not go to jk rowling and george r martin's fight I, my also second favorite note is just crack law point baby in caps sometimes i think that we should put our notes on our patreon that sounds great yeah i don't know they're pretty wild mine are pretty funny and annoying mine here, here's another note magic sword lol <laughs> Indeed. Sure i wrote something like that too i'm gonna give my own to nimble dick making fun of sir galadin's magic sword and when he's talking about his head being in the whispers saying i should have used my magic sword and even brienne laughs at that and then when brienne and them all show up all she could think about is picturing this head saying i should have used my magic sword i thought that was really funny that so great. own to that first own no big deal no no pressure at all um what was okay what's the exact line with jamie's hand because i had forgotten about that and that is awesome i'm gonna find it it is on page 421 if you're using the same paperback as i am which you likely probably probably aren't. not because i have so many <laughs> there's different... like 80 of them timmy was still trying to fight as she pulled her blade from him its fullers running red with blood he clawed at his belt and came up with a dagger so brienne cut his hand off that one was for jamie Ooh. own good yep Good, good, good. I kind of want to give my own to Brienne when she pulls the ladder up and the hayloft. <laughs> She's just so mean. Like, oh, Podrick and I are sleeping up here. You sleep down there. Like, I understand why she did it, but it's just that could have been in like a, a rom-com, you know? It was just mm-hmm. really, that's true. really funny. Um, but I, I, I definitely have to give my own to uh, what the mountain did to Vargo Hote. Man, he got his Vargo Hote. And yes, also indeed. to Brienne for having a, a bite that infected and made his ear fall off and turn nasty. So it all just kind of works out. Yeah, I love when Jamie hears about that. Or hears doesn't he doesn't he hear about that when he goes to Heron Hall and he hears that Yeah. Varga, yeah, and he's just like the ear too sweet or something like that. Yeah. I just imagine Jamie riding away after he hears that news and he's just like whistling the bear in the maiden fair happily. Exactly. <laughs> Couldn't happen to a nicer guy. All right. So that was Brienne's chapter. We're going back in time. To the Queen Maker. Mm-hmm. Back to Dorne. Not to the tower. To the desert and the water. 
and the blood. Blood. Mm, very poetic. Um, I'm going to give my own to Dre, Dr. Dre, who says to Marcella, I understand you fought some mighty battles too, your grace. It is said that you show our brave Prince Tristane no mercy at the Sybass table. I thought that was funny. Her mighty battles in a game. That is, and that is sweet. I'll give mine to Ariohoda for the very end. For someone, someone told the shrug, and then someone always tells. That's that is, a really good own. That is the delightful perspective on everything that just happened. I kind of want to give my. I, I can't keep doing this. I can't. Just, I can't you, even want to. <laughs> you give your owns right, every t- week. You give <laughs> five owns a week to each chapter. I'm not even kidding. It's this new trend, and it's so annoying. It's not really annoying, but. We I'm all sorry. work hard to pick one. You have to pick one. That's the right. part of it. Got a discipline, You're right? right? You're right. Okay. I'm going to give my own to... Well, uh, it's so tough. <laughs> when, she, when, she, when she's she's like wondering how long Eris was pondering that quote. That's so savage. Sure. That's so savage. But I'm going to give my own to this description, which I believe was Ariane's own thought when she counted their number. Seven riders on their way to glory. One day the singers will make all of us immortal. I just thought that self-awareness was cool. Oh, yeah, that was great. Yeah, that's great. That was really great. On their way to glory. Those were our owns. I wanted to give more. And I hope that the ones I wanted to give, you will now help me with as we read your owns. Our first own from Twitter is from... At unlaust, um, and they say Queenmaker owned to someone, as Ariel Hota said, someone always tells, and it undid all of Ariane's careful plans. Next for Brienne is Brienne Four is one of my favorite chapters in A Song of Ice and Fire because of Nimble Dick. Been looking forward to giving him my own. That's awesome. Yes, indeed. Today's the day. The last day, in fact. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No more after that. R.I.P. So yeah, next pair up from Heathen King on Twitter. Owned to Brienne for that berserker rage that destroyed three bloody mummers. Laugh, she snarled at him. He moaned instead. Ouch. Indeed. And then for the Queenmaker, he might be a dick, but owned to Gerald Dane for this badass line. No, men call me Darkstar, and I am of the night. At Black Eyed Lily on Twitter says, Her own for Brienne 4, Podrick, is owned by the Squishers, padding along on their webbed feet with a little squish, squish sound, and scales where a proper man's got hair. And then she has a a collection of emojis that are very accurate to the story. Scared face, paw print, paw print, eye, squid. Very like accurate. There's a puzzle in there. Also, her own for the Queen Maker. Ariane is owned by jealousy of Brother Quentin and her bad boy fetish for Uncle Oberon and Darkstar. Cross sword explosion emojis. I love the emojis. Yeah, that's pretty love perfect. It. Next on Twitter, we have Peter Palenzi who says, anytime you have a Dane in the story is a great time, particularly after seeing the Sword in the Morning action in season six. Also, Gerald Hightower. We got like best of the both worlds. We got a Gerald Dane this time. <laughs> that's true. From uh, Claire Fleisch on Twitter, Owen to Duran for being so badly underestimated by his own daughter. <laughs> <laughs> Which, yeah. That is so true. That's really true. true. Momo, scheming sailor, pity owned Sir Eris for having zero game and terrible pickup lines. <laughs> oh, man. And then lastly for Twitter, we have Brienne of Tarth at Beauty Brienne, who says, Crackbones gets an own for his dragon killing technique. And Ariel Hota also gets one for ensuring we don't have to wade through another Eris folk heart <laughs> chapter. Oh, my. Oh, so salty. Brutal. Real. So next up from Facebook, we have Travis Cole on the Queenmaker. My own for the Queenmaker chapter goes to Gerald Dane, a.k.a. Darkstar, for his two lines. No, men call me Darkstar and I am of the night. That was so badass like some Darth Vader shit. 
And for a salty <laughs> remark, my house goes back 10,000 years unto the dawn of days, he complained. Why is it that my cousin is the only Dane that anyone remembers? My opinion after seeing Sir Arthur Dane in the show at the Tower of Joy, because he was a beast. Yep. Preach. Yep. Cannot disagree. And from Brienne 4, my own goes to Oathkeeper for this chapter. From how Podrick held it gingerly as if it were a child, even the sound of it sharper than an ordinary sword, and how it fittingly got some revenge for Jamie by cutting off Timian's hand. Brienne is badass on the show, but way more badass in these books. Agree with that. Mm-hmm. And email from Nick Hartley, and I'm going to guess the end of his email says that he does not so because he does not so. <laughs> he goes on to say, "My own for the Queenmaker goes to Oberyn Martell. The Red Viper gave the gift of poison and adventure to his daughters, niece, and the people who would dare to dream that they could do things greater than their lot in life. How sad would their lives be if Doran were the only influence? My own for Brienne goes to Pod. Numerous times throughout this point of view, he offers to fight and kill for Brienne's safety with no real knowledge of how to do it." either despite his limited time with her he takes being her squire seriously enough to risk his own life for hers nick hartley does not so podrick forever and then our last email that we have is from elise miller who says my own for the queen maker goes to ario hota for personifying the old adage don't say i didn't warn you when he cuts down the gallant fool sir eris okart as he charges towards him in defiance Serve, obey, protect. Ario, the ever-faithful servant of Prince Duran. Dude is doing his job. Sir Eris Oakheart, not so much. My own for Brienne 4 goes to the young werewood tree she notices upon her arrival at mm-hmm. the Whispers, the spot where she will later bury Nimble Dick, an unintentional blood sacrifice to the old gods. Ah, oh, nice. Then quotes, soldier pines were everywhere, drawn up in solemn ranks. In their midst was a pale stranger, a slender young werewood with a trunk as white as a cloistered maid. Dark red leaves sprouted from its reaching branches. Beyond was an emptiness of sky and sea where the wall had collapsed. The stranger, the maid, collapsed mm. walls. Dot, dot, dot. The details are so delicious. Well. (laughs) (laughs) I agree with your laughter. (laughs) Thank you for the email, Elise. And thanks to everyone else for sitting in your own for these two chapters. They were fantastic. And Emmett, thank you for for coming on the podcast, man. We've never done this before. And you're reading knowns and just laying it down like, you know. So awesome. Thanks so much for having me. And if you want to follow along with us and send in your own owns um you can head to a feast with dragons.com next time we're going to be reading elaine one and aria two so all my dreams from earlier in this episode are coming true yeah and elaine, you can huh? send mm. in hmm, interesting i wonder who that could be um you can send in your owns in a number of different ways you can tweet at us at game of owns you can write on our facebook wall or you can send us an email at contact at gameofowns.com. We are now halfway through season one on Rewatch the Throne, our other show on the podcast network, How, something we're very excited to be making with our friend Evan, who is now reading the series for the first time, having only watched up to a specific point. And he's learning a lot of those reveals directly from the book. And uh, it'll be good to get his perspective on some of that, hopefully on this show, outside of that. But if you're interested in any of those takes... Also, just being five episodes into season one, that is full of Varys and Littlefinger that we do not get to see in the book. Something that I think that we kind of forget, not on purpose, but there's so much show to watch. It's easy to forget some of those smaller details in season one. And uh, 
we're going over a lot of those right now. Yeah, it's awesome. We're halfway through season one, so this is when it all gets real. You can find Rewatch the Throne at rewatchthethrone.com. And before we go, we wanted to remind you that the enhanced editions of George R. R. Martin's Game of Thrones books are available exclusively on iBooks, including the just released A Feast for Crows Enhanced Edition. It contains interactive character maps, hundreds of author notes, beautiful illustrations, a sigil guide, and much more. All these extras bring this thrilling adventure to life and help you stay on top of the epic storylines. Please follow along with us. Get a Feast for Crows Enhanced Edition exclusively on iBooks at apple.co slash Game of Thrones. Not available in all countries. And for our other podcast stuff, you just head over to patreon.com slash goo where we make a squad of ice and fire and release extra stuff from Game of Thrones to you as a thank you for supporting us on Patreon. And other ways to support the show, you can head over to iTunes and rate and review us and give us the five stars that we, we need. deserve. Natural. I don't like saying that we deserve. And that you've, you've rated us five, us five stars, stars. right? But if everyone should rate you five stars. Thank you. You know, we, we respect your work so much and it means a lot that you enjoy Game of Thrones and get something out of it because uh, oh, totally. you care about uh, the story just as much as any of us, more than most of us. And uh, there's a lot of, of our listeners that really love the work that you're doing as far as your just kind of stream of consciousness approach to getting your thoughts about uh, certain parts of the story out and focusing a lot on a lot of those things that I, I think are a little bit less kind of a uh, headline grabby, you know, kind of the more, I don't know, I'm, I'm making a fist right now, just some of the grit that's coming and uh, the future books. I can only imagine how excited you are for the Winds of Winter. Hugely. It's, yeah, it's, that's going to be, I, I you know, I love the overall community that's gathered around these books and watching that community kind of ripple and change overnight is going to be uh, quite a thing to watch when that book comes out as everything Every little part of the story changes and our perspective on it changes, then that's going to be a delight to be part of for sure. Where can our listeners find what you're doing online? Sure. So you can, my main site is poorquentin.tumblr.com, P-O-O-R-Q-U-E-N-T-Y-N.tumblr.com. Like I said, I'm also a mod at asoiafuniversity.tumblr.com, which is kind of an aggregate site for writings on the series. And um, you can find me also at on uh, Twitter. Also go by Poor Quentin there. And if you're coming to Con of Thrones next summer, you'll witness me unleashing the Eldritch Apocalypse. <laughs>